Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Anthony Vecino is a best-selling author, a real estate investor, a serial entrepreneur who's committed to helping people maximize their return on life. He's the co-founding partner of Invictus Capital, a multifamily acquisition firm based in Minneapolis, and they provide busy working professionals with the opportunity to invest better. As the host of the Multifamily Investing Made Simple podcast and author of his book, Passive Investing Made Simple, Anthony firmly believes investing shouldn't be complicated, it shouldn't be scary and or overwhelming. Now, I'm keeping Anthony's bio very short because to describe who this man really is and the ground he has covered on his journey would take far too long. Better to hear about it directly from the man himself. So. Let's get this show started. Anthony Vecino, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's, uh, you know, we recently only just met and had a brief conversation before, but uh, you're a cool cat out of uh, Minnesota. You're a real estate guy, but uh, just for the sake of the viewers and the listeners, uh, give us an insight into what it is that you do. Yeah, I'm a real estate guy, and that tells you almost nothing. Right? Like, there's so much, so many. <laughs> or, ways it, or it says everything. Or it says everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know everything I need to know about this guy. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> so, so I'm a you know the the particular stick within real estate that I wield is multifamily apartment syndications, mm. and so we focus up here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota and Minneapolis and St. Paul. And what we do is we go and we buy value add class B and C assets. 
usually between 20 and 60 units. That seems to be the sweet spot we really like to, to play in. And we go and find these assets that are undervalued for some reason. We add value. And then we realize that value. And, you know, one of the things that makes us unique is that we invest directly in our backyard. We're vertically integrated with our own property management and construction team in-house. And so that kind of landlocks us, kind of limits how many markets we can play in. But it also gives us the home field advantage here in the Twin Cities. So from high level, that's the real estate thing that I do. Well, and I mean, that's actually quite a lot, even though it, like you say, you know, you're a little bit focused on those areas or a lot focused on those areas. There's both pros and cons to that. I see lots of pros always as you get to own your own backyard, you get to know it intimately. And that's also where opportunities show up and where you get the opportunity, in fact, to work with individuals and a team that's also local, uh, which has also got some advantages to it. Now, when you're talking about B or Cs, are you talking about buying a B in an A area kind of thing? Give me a little bit of background in terms of, I want to dig into this a little bit. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I want to get a little bit more background on the multifamily space. Uh, most mm-hmm. of our listeners are quite uh, savvy in terms of the real estate world. And I know this is a, you know, the multifamily space is a, is actually a popular topic. It's hot these days. Yeah, for sure. The the market, the, what we like to look for is those value add CB assets, but we look for them, like you pointed out, in good neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. we're not really looking in C neighborhoods. We're looking at least in the B neighborhood, mm-hmm. if not an A neighborhood. If you can get a value add class C asset in a A neighborhood, oh, you're you're sitting very, very pretty. But those can be very difficult. So that's what we focus on because At the end of the day, it's best to have the worst building on the block of like a great block than it is to have the best building on a really terrible block. So we try to stay away from those areas that, listen, like market and neighborhoods, like we know real estate is hyper local. It's all about location, location, location. Mm -hmm. And the difference between one neighborhood and then going two blocks over and being in another neighborhood can be night and day, which is where the the home field advantage really comes to play because we know what those neighborhoods are to avoid and maybe even block by block, which ones mm-hmm. to avoid. Yeah. But if you can find the right ones where you know it's in the path of progress and you know it's moving in the right direction and there's economic tailwind behind it, it makes everything so much easier mm-hmm. because you're just riding the wave of all the money that's being poured into that area to help bring it up. And so you're not fighting. You're not fighting as hard as you would be in um, just trying to turn a neighborhood. It's never good to be turning a neighborhood. Yeah, an old, you know, a friend of mine and a longtime member of the community, Victor, he, you know, um, Victor Menashe, he, he has a phrase that he's, he's, he also does big projects. He's a uh, U.S., he's out of Canada, but he focuses on the U.S. and different different places in the US. But his theme is buy the line, move the line. And something that you said, you know, a block Mm. or two, he's even more precise than that. He goes in like with really key precision and he'll buy on the block where across the street is something decent. And then he's on the other side of the street and his job is to actually buy that line and move the line. So he actually invests on the other side of the street and he just keeps moving the line. He's done that very successful for a number of years, been a great strategy. And, and to your point, it's like, you know, trying to find that, that particular, we'll call it a, a, a B or a C building in an A area. I mean, those are kind of unicorns, but they're sure nice when they show up. In your, Anthony, in your model, when you talk about bringing that building up, are you going in, are you looking for stuff that you've got to totally renovate? What's the kind of a, what's, you know, are you going in and unit by unit? Are you, you know, are you evicting the building? How, what's kind of your model in terms of how you're taking that on? That's, that's a really good question. So generally, 
we like to lean towards things that are lighter value adds. So going in there and making unit level renovations and upgrades to things like the flooring, the paint, the appliances, kitchens, bathrooms, things that tenants will pay more for. Appreciate that will lead to more rent premiums, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not looking for things that have uh, like, oh, I need a new roof or I need new windows or I need new plumbing. Like those issues, they occur because these are older buildings and it's unavoidable. But generally, so like the way I think about this is when I was like 14, I, I had this issue where I was, I was like a 14 year old boy. I didn't like showering. And my dad was always fighting with me to go take a shower. And finally I went and took a shower and I came back out. I was like all proud. I was like, look at me. I took a shower. And he goes, Anthony, you don't get points for taking a shower. You only lose them if you don't take a shower. I was like, okay. And that applies to the types of renovations we do. Like we try to focus on what do we actually get points for versus not get points for it. Now, before COVID hit, we were doing heavier value adds, things that required a little bit more heavy lifting, bigger unit turns. And in particular, we took down this asset right before COVID. So this was in January 2020 mm. that was predicated on doing some unit renovations, but getting out the entire tenant base. This was the quintessential worst building on the best block uh, situation. All the tenants were just real, real terrible though. So they needed to go, which became difficult in COVID with the eviction moratorium. Sure. We still navigated it, but what it did was it made us go, let's maybe adjust our game plan here moving forward through COVID and into 2021, where we don't know what the market's going to do. Mm -hmm. um, let's lean towards things where it already has a good tenant base. It's already cash flowing and generating the returns that we're looking for. We can go in there and deploy CapEx to add like fuel to the fire sure. and accelerate the value, but we don't need to, right? And that's a nice position to be in, in during 2020 and 2021, where I don't want to go and spend a million dollars of CapEx, not knowing what next year is going to bring, right? Like that's, that's, it's scary. And so we're looking for things where we can afford to do lighter renovations. Sure. So how did you get into the multifamily space? Now, most people don't start there. They start in a residential single family uh, or at least, uh, you know, duplex, triplex kind of thing. Uh, how did you, where did your journey of real estate uh, start and where, where you're now into this, this multifamily uh, model that you're working with? You, you nailed it. You pretty much cited my journey um, on the nose right there. But it was funny because like the universe kept trying to put real estate in front of me at different points in my life. And I kept ignoring it. Said so, like, I'm not interested. So like my first experience was in college doing fix and flips with my roommate and his dad. And I was helping with grunt labor in exchange for free rent, which seemed great. But what I learned out of that experience was that I can swing the hammer, but I can't hit the nail. Like mm. I have no skill or aptitude for construction. It's something I absolutely despise. And so from there, I was I was very turned off to real estate because that was all I knew. That was my only ex my only um, exposure to it at the time. And a lot of I think for a lot of people, that is the primary thing they think about when they think of real estate. Is like I'm going to go do the HGTV Chip and Joanna method. I'm going to find a shanty and then you know. Uh, do a little razzle dazzle and now it's worth $2 million. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's what most people think of, but I hated that. Like that wasn't for me. And so about a decade later, a buddy came to me. Well, actually I was living with a guy um, who, who I w at this time I was just a broke professional rock climber, which uh, like, sounds really cool, but it really wasn't um, as glamorous as it like maybe sounds, but I was living in this house with like seven other people. And the guy that owned the house didn't work. 
at all. And Weird. we couldn't figure out how he owned the building. We were living <laughs> in like Oakland, California. We're like, and we, we were convinced he was a drug dealer. We're like, that's the only way you could afford this, right? And it, and he like, it wasn't until a little bit later that I started to unpack how he did that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, everybody can do this. This is, <laughs> this isn't super hard. And so I went and bought a triplex with FHA loan for $7,000. Uh, bought a build a triplex that was for what is two hundred forty six thousand five hundred dollars. Nine months later, it appraised for three hundred seventy five thousand dollars. So in the span of nine months, I I made one hundred twenty five thousand dollars because I'm an expert investor. Of course, no. all buildings <laughs> that appreciate that. That's nothing to do with that. <laughs> exactly. I I just got really lucky. Is what it was. Like I rode organic appreciation because yeah. everybody in the neighborhood was selling for the like bonkers right yeah. so i just got lucky and but that that really drove home for me like i don't like feeling lucky in my investing mm-hmm. i don't i want to have more control and that's what led me to multifamily was saying okay i can control the valuations based off of how i operate these assets so if i suck well good i'm going to lose i like the meritocracy of that but if i can perform well then also i win and yeah i can like look myself in the mirror at night and say i did something Mm-hmm. So where did you kind of cut your teeth? Like, where did you get your education around multifamily? Because it, you know, it's a much deeper conversation. There's a lot uh, more diligence to be done. There's a lot more involved in financing. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, learning that goes into buying a building, let alone doing it through an LP or some kind of a joint venture or raising capital that just adds another degree of complication to it. Uh, where did you get your education from? Where did you uh, kind of get your start on that? So I started entirely with books and podcasts just like this and YouTube, consuming a lot of information. Because in the early days when I started, I was just using my own money, Mm -hmm. that triplex and then rolling that forward into my first multifamily assets. I was just doing it all myself because I wanted to learn. I wanted to go to the school of hard knocks on my own dime. Mm. I didn't want to go taking my family or friends or anybody else's money to do these things and then learn the hard way. Oh, my God, I really suck at this. I lost everybody's money. So I went and did the first handful of deals all by myself and really just learned by doing and by consuming information. Now, when it came time to say I'm ready to start joint venturing and taking other people's money and specifically syndicating these deals where we're taking in purely passive investors and these are regulated by the SEC, that's when I decided, okay. I need to have somebody who's done this before, who can look over my shoulder and make sure, one, that I'm not going to do anything stupid, but two, that I'm protecting my investors at all costs. Sure. And so I joined an educational group called Jake and Gino, where, uh, and that was during my very first indication. I really wanted to have that expert, somebody who has been there before, who could, who could save me the time, the energy, and hopefully some heartache. Because for me, like taking people's money, like, again, I, I was a poor rock climber at one point in my life as $80,000 in debt and had nothing but a van to my name at one point. And so like, when we talk about taking people's money, it's something that causes me a lot of stress even to this day, because I know just what a dollar costs a person. Yeah. And I think we need to put a correction. You were, you were a poor rock climber as in broke, not a bad rock climber. Like you were an awesome (laughs) rock climber. You just couldn't figure out how to make money at it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like with most sports, most people think like all NFL and NBA players are like quadzillionaires. It's not true. There's like 5% of the population make all the money. Everybody else just kind of like makes do with the scraps. And that's, I was, I was making do on the scraps. I wasn't good enough to like dominate, you know, but I was a good rock climber. (laughs) That's my solace. (laughs) Okay. So you're a broke one, not a poor one. Got it. Okay. 
mm-hmm. carry on. So you you get you get some guidance. You are smart enough and respectful enough to understand that you're investing, or other people are counting on you to put their capital to work and to mitigate the risks around that. Uh, you saw multifamily as the kind of the road into doing that and effectively leveraging capital and doing all the things that you do. But there's a there's a part of it where we go through that learning curve, or or at least many of the investors that I know, they go through a learning curve that they're saying, you know, why multifamily? Why do I take it on? It's a longer term. It's a bigger, it's more work. Do you, do you have an actual reason why multifamily appealed to you so much? Was it just because it was scalable? Uh, the money was bigger? What, what was it? What was behind the thought process for you when you took it on? That, and that's a killer. That's a, such a good question. And honestly, like, I am a multifamily investor. I'm an apologist for it. And so it'll sound like I'm on a soapbox, but let me just preface this by saying that there's like, there's countless ways to make money in real estate and there is no right way or wrong way. A lot of it just comes down to understanding your particular skills, your aptitudes and your personality and your appetite as an investor. So you could do great as a fix and flipper, but that's not for me. That's not my stick, right? And you could do great in self-storage or you could do great in office. There's all these ways to make money. But at the end of the day, for me, I had to pick a path that played to my strengths and my weaknesses and could lead me to the destination that I wanted to go. And that was multifamily for five reasons. First being control, then stability, then cash flow, then appreciation, the tax benefits. So from the top, let me just ex- like really quickly run through these. Control in the sense that I own this asset and I have the ability to influence the value of it. Yes. If I go and I increase its revenue, I decrease its expenses, then I improve its NOI, when, which in exchange increases its value. I like that. I like knowing that when the world is ending, I have the ability to go and talk to my residents and work with them to say, hey, let's find a solution here. Whereas when the stock market tanks, I can't do anything except for write it down, right? That's all I can do. I like knowing that at the end of the day, I can do something. So the control was big. Two was stability. The the problem with small like triplexes and quads for me was that if a tenant moved out, well, I'm 33% vacant. Okay, maybe I'm not covering my mortgage anymore. But if I have a hundred unit building and somebody moves out, well, now I, I I'm only missing one percent, and mm. so that's probably not affecting my cash flow drastically. So it's inherently more stable. And we see this in 2007, 2008 as well in terms of the way these buildings are valued is as a business. And so we saw very low foreclosure rates in 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. on these assets, like less than one percent. And what we did see was rent stagnation for a couple of years, but then things started ticking back along. So not all real estate is created equal. You know, what happened in 2007, 2008 was brutal on certain sectors, single family in particular. Multifamily didn't really get burned in the same way. So I like that stability. Three was cash flow. Like these assets are generating cash flow every month. And it's a meaningful amount of cash flow. It's not just a little bit we're squeaking by because again, the bank is valuing valuing these as a business. They want to see a certain margin between your debt service coverage ratio, right? And yeah. so uh, presumably every month you're taking home some cash flow. They appreciate because man, this is this is the coolest part is that in the US in particular, like the pool of renters is only growing from both ends. We're seeing millennials move further and further deeper into not wanting to own their own home and renting. But we're also seeing it with the baby boomers on the back end. They're getting later in life. They have these big houses. The kids don't want to inherit it. Now they're saying, well, what do I sit on this for? Why don't I just downsize and 
reduce my monthly expenses. I go live my life and travel a little bit more. And so baby boomers are actually the largest growing demographic of renters. And so we see this, this constant appreciation of value because there is this constant demand and a limited supply. And then the tax benefits, like real estate is the best, one of the best, unless you're digging for oil in terms of tax benefits. Mm -hmm. And so those are the five things that for me, multifamily did better than all the others. And it played to my particular strengths. You know, it's, uh, you know, of course in Canada, it's, you know, it's interesting the difference between the U.S. I see some very successful Canadian investors in the multifamily space, but they head into the U.S. because of the availability of buildings. And the, uh, you know, in, in Canada, we just don't have that availability. Uh, I, I think I read, it was just today, my memory's bad, but I want to say, it's like 85% of purpose-built, like call it multifamily apartment buildings were built in the 80s. So it's never been beneficial. It's never made sense for new builds to actually go into the space and uh, for developers to build purpose-built. Now, it's just starting to come back again where we're starting to get some new buildings. But ultimately, everybody went to a, you know, a condo, multifamily condo uh scenario as opposed to the traditional apartment buildings uh, that we would normally see in which I, I believe you're kind of that's where you, the space that you play in. And so it's different in Canada that way. But I'm curious, you know, uh, where where's things at with a moratorium that they had in the U.S. for renters? Um, that's a good question. It changes so quickly. Like, yeah. It, let's just say it's still not advantageous in terms of the landlord and being in the landlord's favor. But the mm -hmm. thing for us is that throughout the last year. And again, we're vertically integrated, which means that we have staff in-house that handles all our resident needs and issues. Sure. And so we can be very proactive in working with our residents because a lot of times we're dealing with workforce housing people who they got, if they're out of work, they are very stressed. And the last year was very stressful mm -hmm. for a lot of people who are maybe service industry workers. And they're like, I don't know when I'm making my money again. And so with a little bit of compassion and understanding that when people are stressed, they put the blinders on, they go into tunnel focus mode. They're not going into solution finding mode. And then they just, they put their head in the sand and then bad, even worse things happen, right? So we try to be really proactive with them and say, hey, let's not let it get to that point. Let's find solutions early. Here's some government assistance programs. Here's how we can work with you so that it doesn't get to the point where we ever need to evict. Now, we had in across our entire portfolio, we had one guy in the last year who just refused on any grounds to work with us, just didn't want to just like some people just thrive on drama and that's inevitable. And he wanted just to make life as difficult as possible. But that is by and large, the exception, not the rule. And my general thesis is that like the majority of humanity is good. Like the, the number of bad players, sure. bad actors, it's, it's relatively small. Yeah. And so like the number of people, if you're vetting with diligence and you're showing compassion and understanding and working with them, most people are pretty cool and willing to work with you. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and I think that's, you know, a, I think uh, if, if, if what we call rental housing providers, we, we shifted language a little bit around landlords. Landlords traditionally have a bad connotation just around the word. Negative connotation. Yeah, negative <laughs> yeah. You know, connotation. So we, we switched to uh, uh, rental housing providers. It just comes across a little bit smoother and more professional, not as, uh, not as old traditional landlords. But anyways, understanding that that communication is really paramount. No different in Canada in terms of, you know, the, the, the investors who own real estate that work 
closely with their tenants probably uh, fared the best without question. But that's, you know, there's always the case of those tenants that uh, actually take advantage of scenarios like this in order to beat the system of, of having to pay rent. So that just goes with it. I want to go back to a little bit. I want to keep talking about the multifamily space for just a little bit. You know, when we look at uh, one of the things I like about the multifamily space is to your point is that there is a way to control and to actually add value just by in being creative in how you uh, increase revenue, for example. And, you know, a good friend of mine who owns a lot of multifamily real estate, you know, talks about finding those buildings where he knows that he can go in and add a stacking washer and dryer to a unit and charge an extra 50 bucks a month for that. And realizing that, you know, for 1500 bucks, he gets a great stacking unit in there installed, ready to go, but it's bringing up, it's 50 bucks a month. And he can do that, let's say in uh, 75% of the units and the value and the lift he gets in the, on that particular building is pretty remarkable. And is that how you look at it where you're saying, where can we add another revenue stream or how, aside from just rent, rent increases are you also looking at uh he also has a a dog spa in some of his buildings right like or a pet spa you know they took out an old laundromat because of course when he put washers and dryers in there was still all this space called you know the previous uh pay for laundry and he guts it and turns it into a you know a pet spa so if you've uh if you've got a pet uh, you can actually go down and use the spa and you pay an extra whatever 20 bucks a month for that well 40 percent of his building is paying 20 bucks a month to have access to the spa and have a pet and all the things that go with it is that kind of how you look at the world as well in this case uh, anthony yeah in in this world you're very much incentivized to find any dollar of value it doesn't really matter where it comes from and i think a lot of people they get the blinders on looking just at rent premiums and mm-hmm. how much they can drive up that. But there's a lot of other sources and you nailed it with laundry rubs, which is ratio utility bill back systems where you can charge back a portion of the utilities to the tenants or just going in there and finding ways to make the building more efficient, maybe putting in new windows so that it loses heat less sure. or put in insulation. So like bring down the utilities because one of the most valuable business lessons like I ever learned and this I learned in it while I was building a different business was my mentor looked at me one day and he said, Hey, just remember that a dollar saved is worth more than a dollar earned. Mm. And what he meant by that was a dollar cut in expenses is worth more than a dollar earned in revenue because the dollar in revenue is always on a margin. Mm -hmm. So if I go in there and I increase rent by $1, but I have a 50% operational expense ratio, then I only get to keep 50 cents of that. It only 50 cents makes to my bottom line. But if I can go in there and cut out a dollar of expenses, say I make my my building more efficient, well, that's $1 that goes purely to the NOI. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think a lot about not just playing the offense and driving up the revenue, but how do we play really good defense? I love that thought process. And it is actually a thought process. It's a, it's a, it's a subtle one, but it has big impact. So I, I love that, uh, that you brought that up because on the other side of it, you know, in business overall, you look and you say, well, if, you know, I, I need to make three bucks for every buck I spend on whatever that might be. And you're, you're actually reverse engineering that whole thought process. And, and it's, it's a good one. I like it a lot. Let me go back to, let me kind of go down a path, you know, Anthony, of, of how you got to doing what you're doing. I understand your path in terms of, you know, I started single family, went to college, did that part of it, but let's go 
back a little bit because uh, you're still a young man. You uh, are into this in, in, hey. in, in business. Well, you are. I mean, you know, everybody's young to me. But the point is this, is that how did you, you know, this is really an entrepreneurial spirit that you've developed and, and kind of evolved. Did you kind of, did you come out of the shoot with an entrepreneurial spirit or uh, did it come from your parents? How is it that you got into this mode called, I want to be a business owner? And uh, I mean, real estate ultimately is just a business, but you know, how did you get that entrepreneurial mm -hmm. spirit? How did you come by it? I definitely wasn't born with it. I wasn't the kid who was ripping up daisies in the neighbor's yard and then selling it back to the lady across the, the way. <laughs> like that was never me. The, the thing that you have to know, I think about me to really understand my path, my journey is the fact that I have really bad ADHD. Mm. And this is something that defined my younger years. Um, when I was very young, I was on Ritalin until I was 16, which had a lot of negative effects on on me just in general, things that I really didn't like. So when I was 16, I had the choice of going off of that. I said, never again, I'm not ever going on a drug. I very much valued my freedom. And I equated that drug with being trapped, this feeling of being a prisoner to the drug. But the problem was I went off that drug. I was 16 and now I was a prisoner to a new type of uh, hell, which was the limitless potentiality of existence. But I didn't have any systems or processes for actually making meaningful progress towards things. It was just a chaotic jumble. And so in college, I really struggled as a student. I was really good at taking tests so I could pass any class, but I was a horrible student in every other imaginable way. And I was a really bad friend. I was a really bad employee. I was getting fired all the time. And it was stemming from like this lack of discipline, this lack of focus, and this lack of desire to do work for other people. And so coming out of college, I realized um, I needed to find my own path. The corporate path wasn't going to work for me because I was just going to get fired. I was going to hate what I was doing, which led me to rock climbing. And that like doesn't pay very well. But what it allowed me to do was it allowed me to embrace that highest value of mine, which was freedom. I could just go out into the wilderness and just live and it didn't matter. And that was great for a long time until I tried to marry this woman. And I went to her parents and I said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And they looked at me and they said, well, how are you going to provide for her? Yeah. And it was the first time in my life that I was ever faced with that question of like, oh, somebody else is going to be dependent on me. What am I going to do about that? And so uh, I, I kind of audited my skill set at that point. I said, what am I good at? I landed on, I can write really well. This is a skill that my dad had cultivated when I was younger. And I was like, I can write. So I started writing science fiction and fantasy novels. And, you know, two years later, I published uh, probably, I think, eight at that point. Um, so I was doing pretty good in that world, but it wasn't good enough for that relationship. And she left me. And this is when everything kind of like imploded in my life. Like when so when somebody you love leaves you and it's it feels how old like are you at this, a, uh, Anthony, how old are you at this point? Just to give me a yeah, time frame. So Time frame. This would have been I was twenty seven, twenty eight. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. this is a oh god, almost a decade ago now. Yeah. Oh, this was a decade ago. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so you know, when somebody leaves you like that, it's an indictment on your character and who you are as a person because you're like, oh, this person I love, they, I'm not good enough for them. So <laughs> I was suddenly really in debt, eighty thousand dollars in debt, living in the back of a van in downtown Oakland, and really questioning my existence and like what I was doing in this on this planet. And my buddy, he saw this, and he came to me and he's like dude, we got to get you out of this. Um, we got to do something different. Come with me and help me build this thing that I'm working on. And he was building a high-rise window washing company. And this was the first time, my first exposure to really building a business. 
but it utilized the skill set that we had, which was we're very comfortable on ropes because we're climbers. We have a network of people who are really good on ropes. And so we built this business um, very, very quickly in a, a relatively short period of time. And I was like, I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. I control my time. I can control where I put my energy and my focus. And at the end of the day, if I do it well, the market responds and that's awesome. So it was like this, you always get this real-time feedback of whether or not you're succeeding or failing. And for me as a competitive person, that was really cool. And so that was the entrepreneurial bug. I went on to go build a couple other businesses and I got this streak of successes, which then gave me the false sense of invincibility, which bit me hard um, on one particular project. When I went to build it with two friends, it imploded disastrously, cost me some close relationships and took some lumps. But from that, realized like, okay, we can either, we either win or we learn. And that was a good learning opportunity. And yeah, that just been since then continuing to build into real estate. And the conversation became at some point less about building things for the sake of building them, but to start building them for the sake of impact and what that meant, not just myself and my family, but the lives of people around me. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things about real estate, and I don't know if a lot of people think about it this way, because uh, I think what gets a lot of people into real estate is this idea of like, you can make money and get wealthy and like 90% of millionaires are millionaires because of yeah, yeah. real estate. Sure. But the, but the coolest thing really about it is like everybody in the world has some relationship with real estate. So your ability to make impact is infinite within that space where well, you can impact communities, you can, can impact families, you can impact employees. Like, And so I found in this most unlikely <laughs> of places, this feeling of like deep sense of meaning and purpose and like how we can improve our city and the lives of the people inside of it. And so that's the convoluted journey of entrepreneurship for me. So, and and I want to go back a little bit uh, and and dig in a bit deeper. Now, were you an only child? Were you, you have siblings? I have six sisters and two brothers. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and I say that because I, uh, I had a guest on a guy by the name of Ernie Harker, and I think he had, I want to say, eight brothers and, and, and there was no sisters. And, and I'm picturing in my mind, you know, nine boys in a household and, uh, you know, very humble roots. So now that you uh, talk about your family, I'm going, that's a big family. And, uh, so now let's, so that's great, by the way. So I'm sure you've and it's, got, it's funny. Just, I want to, I want to share this because my dad always gives me my, he gives me so much crap because he listens to all every, everything that I put out into the world. And I talk a lot about my siblings, yeah. but I, I, often count my siblings incorrectly and he'll he'll be like wait you do know you have this many i'm like oh yeah i'll usually be like i have six siblings and he's like you have eight siblings i'm like oh yeah after five i lose count yeah that's hilarious Uh, i don't know if you're ever going through like i had three sisters i was the only boy in the family and when i'd get pissed off at one of my sisters in the all all of their names started with c and by the time i got you know to say the name that i was pissed off at it was usually at the end of the list right i had to go through all three names to get to it i'm interested in the adhd journey that you had where did when did you pick up or when did your family your parents school whatever when did you pick up on the adhd issue so I was six years old and my teachers, they went to my mom and said, we think there's something wrong with Anthony, which is like, 
I mean, it's funny how many times the sentences started that way in my life, but in this particular case, they were like super concerned because I was falling behind the other kids. Like sure. I couldn't sit still. I was unfocused and, and they thought I was slow. Right. And so mm-hmm. they tested me and then came back with ADHD. And what's interesting is that was the heyday of ADHD diagnoses. Sure. And so there was this element where my dad didn't agree with the diagnosis. My mom was like, this is a godsend because I was a, I was a handful and she had a lot of kids. And so they put me on Ritalin, which really like tranquilized me. So yeah. for my mom, it was a godsend. For my dad, he never, he never bought into it, which created this other sense of friction point where I like, it's a real thing that I struggle with. Not everybody, when they say they have ADHD, really does. Like mm-hmm. they, they mean like they have difficulty focusing and with distractions. And like we all do. Like that's that's life. And a big part of what I'm really passionate about right now is, is sharing a lot of my journey and the things that helped me control and focus my ADHD, because it's stuff that's not only applicable for me, but also for people that don't have ADHD, because the world is like everly increasing in terms of distraction and like social media. It's just, there's so much out there that could pull your attention. So Mm. it was a, it was interesting um, growing up with that because in my household, my, uh, there was always like this, this push and this pull of like my mom saying, Oh, there's something wrong with you. My dad's saying, Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. And that created a lot of tension at times. So when you look at your, you know, that, that time of ADHD, you matured, you, you know, at 16 years old, you're going this, I got to get, you know, like, this is not working for me. You realize that probably, you know, whatever meds that you've, they've got you on, or is shutting you down probably creatively or even energetically, or was it that conscious that you're just going, hold it, this doesn't work for me anymore? Uh, was it because of how you were feeling, viewing the world? Uh, was it an emotional thing, a mental thing? What, what kind of got you to that point where you're going, this shit's got to stop? Oh God, it was so, it was. So the interesting thing about ADHD is a lot of people think it means that we can't focus, but that's mm-hmm. really not what it is. It's it's the inability to always control what we're focused on. Mm-hmm. But when we're interested or curious on a topic, mm-hmm. we become very laser-like focused. Sure. And it's actually called the hyper-focused state, which is the cousin of the flow state. But the problem for me was Ritalin, it, like, it forced me into that state. So I had no energy, but I was like constantly laser focused. So mm-hmm. if it was watching the paint dry or watching TV or reading a book, like I was focused on it to a thousand percent, which was exhausting. I never, it, but it was also like this prison where I was like, I couldn't get out of this hyper-focused prison. Mm-hmm. And during the summers growing up, every summer from when I was like a little kid until I was um, a, an adult, I would go out to my grandparents' ranch in Idaho and we had horses and ducks and cats and 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 gardens and like all this fun stuff. And they would take me off of Ribland for the summer and just let me run free. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. It was like the coolest thing. And then I would go back to school and be stuck in this state again of feeling like a zombie inside my own body. I felt trapped by my body and my brain. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 16 and they, they gave me the choice of going off, of it, I was like, this is a no brainer. I don't want that reality. It doesn't feel I, I don't feel like me when I'm in that state, mm-hmm. but at that point I was young and dumb and there was nothing to replace it. There was still this issue with me. Like I still had this problem I needed to solve. Mm-hmm. And all I knew was that this didn't work, but I had nothing to actually solve the issue. And so for the next decade, it was like really floundering, trying to desperately find something that would work. Mm-hmm. But, and then you landed on 
in your case, the, the activity in this case, rock climbing and whatever other athletics you did. That's what I, I think I heard you're saying in that, in that regard, it was really about where do you apply your, or put your attention? Where do you take that focus where is it productive? Where does it light you up? And, and I don't want to minimize, or I, I'm not trying to encapsulate everything in that, uh, that summary, but is that somewhat what it was for you? Well, what's interesting is that with rock climbing, that was actually really easy for me because, again, I was curious about it uh, and I could go into this hyper-focused state and obsess about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what allowed me to get really good at it. Mm -hmm. But if you look at my track record during that period of time, I wasn't a very good human being. I wasn't functioning in society. I was going into great debt. I wasn't contributing meaningfully. I wasn't generally what you would look at and say, that's a, a functioning member of society. And so this, I, I, what I allowed myself to do was find my, uh, find a niche that I could just pour myself entirely into where the only person really not being served by it is me at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so when I tried to come out of that with that woman that I tried to marry, I, I started to run into this issue of like, how do I actually meaningfully engage with society? Mm -hmm. And really what the solution was, and it's, it's super counterintuitive, was I started creating a lot of structure around my life. Mm -hmm. I started creating habits and rituals, routines that as I would layer these on top of each other, it would create more and more discipline and structure. Sure. And a lot of people look at that and they go, oh, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like structure. And most people, like in my situation with ADHD, I rebelled against it. But I, what I discovered was in that discipline and in that structure, I found freedom. Mm -hmm. Because now I could move things forward that needed to move forward without feeling like, I was just a chaotic jumble. Yeah. And so that was like the really counterintuitive switch for me was discipline equals freedom. It's interesting, you know, the, the one of the reasons I have a bit of an interest in it, and, and I haven't talked about ADHD with anybody particular for many years, but there was a time when I was, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. John Demartini, uh, but he's a, he's a cool cat and we did some coaching with him many years ago. And um, he talked about ADHD and he's one of his, real expertise is in this study is in universal law. And so in the world of universal law, there is no one side of anything. There is not a positive. There is not just a negative. There can only ever be balance on a positive and negative. We just have this perception that it's all one-sided or the other-sided. And the truth of the matter is, is it can't be. It's, it's physically, it's energetically, it's impossible. It's not how the world is wired. And I totally get that intellectually and, I, and it all makes sense to me. I get it. And when he talked about ADA, HD, you know, he said, well, think about attention deficit. So where isn't, where aren't those children or where aren't, or aren't those people getting enough attention? That was one of the things that he said. And then when you talk about attention deficit, then on the other side of deficit is where is there abundance or where is there attention, whatever the opposite of uh, uh, deficit is. And, you know, he always looked at it and said, you know, I work with kids all the time and all I need to do is speak into their values. And all of a sudden their attention deficit gets fixed in that moment because I'm speaking in their values. He says where there's always attention deficit is when it comes to the uh, disconnect of values. So they don't value it and they have no attention on it. So I don't know if that speaks or lands any way for you in a, in, in a way that makes sense, but it always intrigued me in that concept. Any any thoughts on that, Anthony? No, that absolutely resonates. I think what you're talking about there is hitting the, the the issue for people with ADHD on the head, which is 
if we're engaged and curious and passionate about a thing, and that's if you're speaking to my values of whatever that could be, mm-hmm. I'm I'm in it. I'm fully obsessed with it. And that's that becomes my super strength. Mm-hmm. And truly, like this thing that for so long in my life I looked at as this weakness or this prison. Sure. Once I once I turn that around, it's my superpower. Mm-hmm. Like nobody can compete with me when I'm in that zone. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, I think, for people without ADHD too. It's just that most people generally have better coping mechanisms for putting up with people not speaking to their values or for yep. things that they're not interested in. Yep. So they just have a higher tolerance. But at a certain point, everybody shuts down and they're like, they're not reaching their full potential yeah. of attention or focus on a topic if they're, if it doesn't speak to their soul. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't speak to it in any, with any degree of knowingness. I, I mean, like I say, I've, I've studied some of it in the past and I, you know, I know people with ADHD and, and it's kind of consistent with that. So, and then, um, the only reason I share it is, is that I know that there's, you know, perhaps listeners out there, parents out there that are dealing with it with one of their kids and they think, you know, and, and, and it isn't necessarily go to a drug. It is really breaking it down and saying, what are the values? I have attention deficit too, you know, just put me in front of my accountant and, uh, you know, I'm done. I have no attention for that. It's just one of those things that I don't like. I like the financial statements. I like the balance sheet, but don't, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't tell me how the watch works, you know, tell me what time it is. So um, anyways, I go down that, but it's interesting as well as what you added to that, which I think is really important is you can look back at it now and actually see what that was to you, uh, which was kind of like, you know, some form of a handicap in terms of it, it, kept you not focused as, as being actually probably these, this year, this many years later, when you reflect on it, just how much of a gift it was. Yeah, absolutely. And to the, to people who are listening to this at home, and I'm sure there's a lot who are struggling either with their own ADHD or somebody that they love very close dearly that they're trying to bridge that gap. Maybe they're, it's a child. I think one of the, the struggles that most people with ADHD really have is this feeling of trapped potential. Mm. And the more I work with people at large, I realize that this isn't maybe super unique to ADHD. I think this, this is just people at, at, at large is that we all, we all feel that we have greatness inside of us. And this is something that Maslow um, talks about, not mm-hmm. just in his hierarchy of needs where we have to have our basic needs and then our, before we can move to self-actualization and all these, like this ladder, right? He talked about this other concept, which I found more impactful, which is that which we can be, we must be. Mm. And what that's saying is that like each of us believes that there's greatness, that we were put here for a purpose, that we have meaning. Like nobody thinks that they're average, right? Like nobody thinks they're an average driver or an average lover. Like everybody is the center of their own universe and they think that they're a special little butterfly as a result. And it's true, you are. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you're not moving towards that greatness, not even just obtaining it, because it's not about attaining anything, it's about progress. Because you're either moving forward in life or you're moving backwards. If we're not moving forward towards that greatness, we feel it in the form of discontentment and frustration and sadness and anger, all these negative emotions. And people, by and large, with ADHD, they have all this motion, but no traction. Mm -hmm. They have this greatness. They know they have this potential, but they just can't seem to get the wheels down on the ground long enough to make progress. And so they just feel lost and confused. And I think extrapolating that out to the population at large and the world at large. I think this is something that maybe we all struggle with. Mm -hmm. So, 
we talk about real estate, but that's not your only business. We, you know, you and I did talk briefly a while back uh, when we first met, and you actually have a quite a successful business that is related or is connected to the rock climbing industry. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's a manufacturing company. We produce polyurethane rock climbing holds. So mm-hmm. if you've ever been to an indoor rock climbing gym and you've seen all those colorful holds on the wall and the and the hardware that's behind the wall and the bolts that are holding those holds onto the wall, we produce all of that. And it's a really fascinating business. And, you know, we were having um, uh, this uh, business networking decision-making course uh, class meetup, you know, a week or so ago. And the leader of that, Tom, said something that I, I thought was like super interesting. And it, it was that we often make the mistake of thinking we're in this industry when in fact we're in this industry. Mm-hmm. And with that business in particular, at the core of it, I think we've always been very clear that we're not in the rock climbing business. Mm -hmm. We're in promoting a healthy lifestyle Mm -hmm. through the sport of rock climbing. And so if you take out rock climbing, what we're trying to do every day is get people engaged with physical activity in a fun way that hopefully they resonate with or is creating emotional health in the sense of like they're problem solving and they're going outside of their way to challenge themselves or they're getting social health in terms of going and networking with friends and and doing this fun activity together. So like that's a really meaningful business for us because it's not just about the widgets we produce, which is really complex and fun, but it's about promoting this healthy lifestyle, which we've just been really fortunate to have benefited so much from in our lives. You mentioned Tom. So both of you and I, that's where we met was through a coaching program that we were just part of with uh, Tom Bilyeu, who's a cool cat. I'm, I'm Impact Theory University. I'm really, I've been a fan of Tom for a while, uh, probably two or three years at least. But being in that program has been interesting, and although I haven't even been able to participate fully. But even with the <laughs> with the session that I've had with him, it was really impactful. I mean, he, he brought that to the forefront is that the business you think you're in is not the business you're in. And that was a, a really cool way to, to actually frame it. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. to your point, uh, in the rock climbing, you think, okay, well, no, I'm in the business of manufacturing, you know, like you say, parts for rock climbers when you're not in that business, you're in a, actually a health and wellness and a lifestyle perhaps business, which is totally mm-hmm. different than I'm a manufacturing of this or that. And, and I think that was a really cool way to frame it and uh, very insightful. Yeah, it's, man, he's he's a rad thinker. And yeah. that's like the highest compliment that I have to give anybody yeah. is like that guy, like if you're, if you're a rad thinker, it's not even that I agree with you. It's that I like the thought process and the intentionality you take to the, the process of life. And yeah. I think he's really great in that way. And one of the things that resonated with me with that conversation was, you know, it's funny on the one side on the manufacturing business where we produce these rock climbing holds, we're very clear about what industry we are, where we're in the health business, mm-hmm. right? But on the real estate side, it's like, wait, what is, what is the business that we're really in? Like, what are we really doing here at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's given us a lot of opportunity to sit and reflect and try to generate a deeper connection with uh, what it is that we are actually doing out there. So um, where do you spend most of your time? Now, I know that the rock climbing, that part of your business uh, is pretty handled by, uh, if I recall our conversation. Uh, Do you spend most of your time in one or the other? Uh, Where is your primary focus these days? Yeah, these days I am 100% in growing Invictus Capital, which is the real estate side of the equation. You know, it's in, we've been doing this for about seven years and, but we're at this point where we're, 
we're at an inflection point of rapid scaling. And so it requires all my time and energy. Whereas the other manufacturing business, it doesn't require that. We have incredible teams in place that are growing it. And, you know, I think it's really important to recognize when you as an owner or as like a senior executive, when your passion for the thing is possibly standing in the way of its continued growth. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was noticing was, I, my time and my attention, my focus, where I was waking up in the middle of the night and what I was thinking about was always thinking about real estate and mm. how we could continue building this in a meaningful way. Mm. And I was waking up less and less and less thinking about the rock climbing. And for me, that was, okay, you need to stop phoning it in. You need to go play where you're, where you can go all out. Otherwise you're just holding back the rest of the team. And so I stepped out of day-to-day -day management of that business at the beginning of 2021 and mm -hmm. focused uh, ever since exclusively on real estate. So fantastic. Now, when you look at your vision for your real estate, you know, uh, and I know many who are investing in multifamily have done exceptionally well. Do you have a vision? Do you have a, like, you know, is it a, is it a multi-billion dollar portfolio? Is it a hundred million portfolio? You know, like, do you, how do you look at the goal that, or set a goal or a target that you want to achieve when you look at scaling? Because I'm assuming you want to scale. That's where your attention's going. Uh, do you have some big targets? What is the vision? Yeah, we, you know, you gotta, you gotta put a, a point on the map and then say, that's where we're going. You mm -hmm. know, like why climb the mountain? Well, the mountain's there. Mm -hmm. And so the mountain that we're trying to climb right now is to 1 billion. Mm -hmm. And when I first started my entrepreneurial journey, it was, hey, let's see if we can be profitable. Cool, we did that. Let's sure. build a $1 million company. Cool, we did that. And then 10 million, then 100. And, like, and so 1 billion is the next step in that. But yeah. that's just a number. Sure. And at the end of the day, the way I want to think about this more is on the investment side of what we do, I want to help produce a hundred millionaires, mm -hmm. right? I want to return hundred million dollars of investor capital. I think that would be really cool mm -hmm. just to be able to impact those lives. And then thinking about the residents and not thinking about just the sticks and the bricks and how many units it would take to go and acquire, to have a billion dollars worth of assets. Mm -hmm. But to think of like, how many families is that to serve? Mm -hmm. Is that a thousand families? Is that 10,000 families? And when you start thinking about it in those terms, one, it's it's a little bit more entertaining and engaging and purpose-filled than just saying, let's go for a billion dollars, which sounds cool. But at the end of the day, if we get to a billion dollars and we haven't made a meaningful impact on the world around us, then what was the point? And so but we're trying I, to lead with that first. Yeah, and, and, but I think it's an important point not to step over. I mean, we, you know, when you set a target, okay, it's a billion dollar target. But of course, it's always about the journey and the impact you're having, the difference that you're making along the way. And I, and I, you know, I can see, number one, I mean, the fact that you're even engaged in a program with a guy like Tom, or even in your conversation of understanding yourself, I mean, that you really do see is, is it is about the journey and what is it? what is the impact you're having on the world or what is the difference you're making? What is the contribution that you're being? Uh, those are all things that make a difference in the multifamily space. You know, I, you nailed it. I think how many families can we impact? And uh, that's an interesting conversation given that multifamily space, tenant profile in general, uh, where can you have an impact just by uh, providing really great living conditions, for example? Yeah. And Patrick, this is the thing, right? Like we, like we focus on the on the class C and class B workforce housing tenants and those tenants are they're so underserved 
like we always think about the class A tenants and they get all the amenities. And if you have a maintenance request, they're going to get somebody there like stat. Yeah. It's so easy to separate yourself from the competition when it comes to class C and class B, mm -hmm. because like most people just aren't doing the basic things that make the residents feel valued and seen mm -hmm. and understood. Like I get, like, I, I get why you guys don't use the word landlord. It's because Man, when I was young, I had a tenuous relationship with a landlord in the sense that this person owns my home that I live in, like my safe place. Like it can't be that safe if somebody owns it and they could just wipe, take it out from underneath of me. So like there's mm -hmm. this power dichotomy from day one. Yep. And just like understanding that and approaching the other person as an equal, not just as a customer or somebody beneath you, but and then saying, how can I serve this person with excellence? And that could, and honestly, the main thing that all residents want more so than anything else, they want safety and they want quick maintenance turnarounds. Mm -hmm. So if something breaks, they, 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 they don't want to wait two weeks for it to be fixed. Like when my fridge breaks, if you told me it's going to be two weeks until it's fixed, I'm going to be super pissed. Yeah. I want to know, I, I want somebody out there tomorrow or today mm -hmm. to take a look at it. So at least I know I'm not just struggling in isolation. <laughs> Well, no, exactly. And I mean, that is, uh, that's a perfect model to step into and really own that space. And, you know, to your point, you know, landlord is an interesting, it's a long, I mean, it's got a history, it's been around for a long time. When we even talk about being a rental housing provider, it just changes the energy. And that's one of the reasons, and we've actually started using it several years ago within our own community. And it does, it just changes the energy. And, and those are the little things that matter in the space of real estate, when you're in the rental market. Market. Um, I'm going to go off topic a little bit in terms of the world of real estate. I want to know a little bit more about your journey. And, you know, you came from a large family, Anthony, and how impactful, what was your relationship with your mom or your dad? Like, how impactful was it? They, you got a large family. Like, you know, were you, were you fighting for attention? What was it like growing up in that space? And, and how effective do you look back now and reflect? You know, of course, we have to get way older before we realize how smart <laughs> our parents are. And uh, what was it for you? I'm interested because it's a big family scenario. Yeah, that's, man, that's a big question. I know, so I know. for me... <laughs> It's, it, but it's a good one because, and I think it's something that we should all think about because you can't understand where you're going until you understand where you are and you don't know where you are until you know how you got there, right? Like you need to have context. And I think for me, my dad, like it starts, my dad was military. So when I was growing up, he was gone a lot. And when he was around, he was kind of like this larger than life superhero type figure. And I think every little boy looks up to their dad and sure. is like, my dad's superhero. Well, like I tried really hard and I really wanted to like impress him. And one of the ways that him and I bonded was over chess. Like he taught me how to play chess when I was very, very, very young. And a pivotal moment in my life was I was 13 and my parents had just been divorced. And it was a really difficult time because I didn't have context, right, for what was happening in their relationship sure. and why that would happen. And I blame my dad for a lot of reasons. But my dad, he moved away four hours away. And so I only got to see him on the weekends. But he, every single weekend from the when my parents got divorced until I decided to move in with him uh, maybe two and a half years later, he came and visited me and my sisters every single weekend. He did not miss one single visitation. Mm. And I didn't understand, like, how 
impactful that was until many, many years later. I didn't realize that for him, that was how he was showing his love because he wasn't a gushy guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a guy that was like, just going to say, like, sure. just he wasn't emotionally super present. Yeah. And this came to a head when I was 13. And I had this moment that has really defined a lot of my life, which was I was playing in the South Dakota State Chess Championship. And my dad had custody of us that weekend. And he dropped me off at the tournament and said, cool, I'll be back when you're done. Um, I'm going to take your sisters. And they went to get Cinnabons. And I remember going into the tournament hall by myself and that feeling like I, it was, it was hard. It was Mm -hmm. this feeling of like abandonment, but then also like this sense of like, well, I'm here to do a job. I, I got to do this job now. And I ended up winning that tournament and I got back in the car at the end and I put my trophy in the back seat and I sit down and my dad turns to me and he says, how did, how did you do? And, um, I said, I won. And his response stayed with me for the, so, I mean, to this day, I still think about it every sure. day. He said, he said, good, you were supposed to. Hmm. And that set this, this very high bar in my mind of, I, it's not good enough just to win or to be the best. It's expected. Hmm. And I have to do that. And what that led me down the path of was this life of confusing achievement with fulfillment or at least trying to fill this hole inside of me with achievements. And so Mm -hmm. I tried it in all these different ways, but the problem was these are fundamentally different mediums, right? Like achievement, it's like a a bowl of noodles and fulfillment is like concrete, a pothole in concrete. It's like trying to fill that pothole with noodles. And I was like, I'm succeeding. I'm achieving. Why do I still fill this, this hole? And I think a lot of I think a lot of people can resonate with that probably. And I think Tony Robbins says that achievement without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And that's mm. really what I was struggling with mm. for a long time was this sense of like, I'm I'm doing it, but I don't feel I don't feel like this is enough still. And it took me a long time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of perspective of my dad just continuing to show up in my life at every opportunity for me to finally like to start to see him differently and understand him better and say, he's not a superhuman. He's just a man. And he has his own demons, his own things that he's working through. But I could start to see how he was always there and showing up and supporting. And there came this point in my life and him and I never have talked about this, but I I started to realize that that conversation him and I had when I was 13 at that chess tournament, when he said, good, you were supposed to, it wasn't an indictment. It wasn't him like setting the bar, this expectation. Mm. It was just this realization. And it was maybe the highest compliment he could have give, given me, which was that he saw, and he still does to this day. He's like my best friend and my biggest supporter. He's like, you have infinite potential and I know you can, you can achieve it. He just didn't have the words mm-hmm. or the emotional IQ to express that correctly in that moment. Mm-hmm. And that, sent us down divergent paths for many years, mm-hmm. but we've since reconnected. And uh, like I said, he's a very, <laughs> my closest relationship at this point. In my uh, life. That's awesome. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that because it really does. I mean, there's a lot in that whole story, but it's interesting at 13 years old that, well, even now, this many years later, you can kind of look back and go, I was a little bit of a, a, a fork in the road for me. It actually took me down a path, a way of thinking. And your dad would have had no idea uh, what had just uh, transpired in your brain and the synapses it fired to take you down that path. You know, So it's always 
interesting to reflect. You know, you're you've been successful in business. You're obviously competitive. You've had some uh, you know some strong wins in some things that you've done. You know, chess being one of them, rock climbing being the other. I'm sure there's other things. But when you look at your own evolution and development, you know, the lesson that you shared just now with your dad, you know, it speaks to some of the reflection that you've had on yourself. So when we when you look at um, how you operate, you know, because we we see individuals that are successful to your point, you know, you don't know what goes like, you don't know what your dad is dealing with. He's a superhero, but you know, he's got a life, he's got shit happening. When you look at your own evolution, your own development, how much time did you put in, you know, like, for example, you're working with Tom Bilyeu, but how much coaching did you do along the way? How much work in the, in terms of personal discovery, personal development, is that an ongoing thing with you? Have you done a lot? You've done a little, where are you at with it? I, um, in my twenties, I didn't do very much formalized. Like I didn't have a coach beyond like, you know, an athletics coach and I didn't have mentors and that was a big problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I was on this journey by myself. I was reading and I was, I'm a self learner, but, and so I was, I, what I was doing was I was looking at people who had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And I was, was trying to work backwards and say, well, this is what worked for them. Maybe it'll work for me. And I tried a lot of things and found a lot, most of it didn't work, but some of it did. And so I started stacking those things, but it wasn't until pretty late in life, I'd say in the last five or six years that mm -hmm. I really started to, to realize the benefit of being around and putting yourself actually in the same room with somebody, with another human being or a group of humans that have either been where you want to be or can offer some perspective and some insight. And I think a lot of that was based out of ego and fear. For me, this idea, like, and this makes a lot of sense if you re remember, like, for me, the benchmark was I have to be the best, which meant I can't show up in a room full of people and ask for help or insight or questions mm -hmm. and show vulnerability because mm -hmm. that would mean I'm not the best. Mm -hmm. And it took me until, you know, <laughs> I would say into my 30s, mm -hmm. I'm 37 now, so maybe mm -hmm. in the last six or seven years to finally uh, not be completely vulnerable and open, but become much more so realizing like it's okay to show up just as you are and you aren't the smartest person in the room. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to be the smartest person in the room because then you're not learning. And so I invest very heavily in my education and my skills and in the people that I surround myself with. Now, I think the three most important investments that you can make are in yourself, in your network and in your community. Mm -hmm. So if you're investing in yourself and your, and your skills constantly, you can't go wrong. It's your best investment you'll ever make and your network, because we always hear it, your network is your net worth, but I want you to think differently about network and replace that word just with relationships, mm -hmm. invest in your relationships, mm -hmm. whatever that means with your friends, your family, your, your, your significant other, and then in your community. Cause at the end of the day, I think a life of impact is, is derived based off of the lives of the people around us. And what are we doing just to leave this, uh, you know, this crazy twirling ball a little bit better than what we were born into. Sure. When you, uh, you know, there's interesting, I just had this conversation a couple of days ago with somebody that was talking about your, you know, that they use that phrase as well around your net worth as a reflection of your network and, and understanding that it's also the quality of the relationships that you have. You know, there's a place where I know a lot of people who know a lot of people. I know a lot of people. As a matter of fact, I have what I would call some very, uh, 
close acquaintances, but you know, you they're they're I know them, but the quality of that relationship isn't really much deeper than we do some, you know, we've talked business or we have known each other for a number of years, but you know, have we broke bread together? Have we had beers together? Have we talked about life? Have we dealt with, you know, there's, so there's the, the quality of relationship makes a big difference. And uh, the quality of your network also makes a huge difference. So it's not how many people, you know, but it's the quality of the people that you know, in terms of, do they align with your values? Are they on the same page as you, you know, do they, do they share common philosophies about life, about morals, uh, you know, and, and that is a big shift for some people who just want to get out and meet a lot of people. And, and I'm not saying that that doesn't work because it works really well for some people. My observation at this point in my life is really about the quality relationship. So I don't know if you have had that similar experience or where you at in that journey with you. A thousand percent. As I was listening to kind of talk through this, I I think in terms of analogy, like that's just where my brain always sure. goes to. And for the audience who are probably primarily real estate investors, I, I want to share like the most, if I, you always get asked a question, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? And the thing that I, I always say is, you hear about how you should start investing as early as possible, as as possible in life, right? The earlier you start, the sure. the more compounding interest is going to work in your favor. Yeah, you know this. We hear this, but so few people actually take advantage of that. And the thing I wish somebody had taken me aside when I was younger is to explain this in terms of not just money, but the most important capital you'll ever deposit is social capital. So invest in the relationships and the people around you, and. The problem is that most people, they put a deposit into the bank of their social capital, but then inflation takes over and it's just devaluing the currency. And they, they put the money into the bank. They, they did that one time we had the conversation and we had the lunch, but then they don't follow up with it. Mm-hmm. And years go by and it devalues the currency that's in that bank account. And then they go to try and make withdrawal and it's not as much as they thought it was. And so you have to be investing constantly to stay pace with the with with inflation because if you don't do that the relationships will deteriorate and at the end of the day it's not about how many people you know it's how deeply you know them mm-hmm. and more important maybe is how deeply they know you mm-hmm. cuz at the end of the day i can know you so deeply you share your story and your vulnerabilities i'm like i know patrick and if he asks me for something i'm going to show up but if i don't reciprocate that so that Patrick knows me just as deeply, he's not going to show up when I need it. 100%. Well said. Now, when you go through and you've, uh, you know, you're a busy guy, you've got life. I want to go back to one story. Did you get the girl back? Did you win her back? Did, did you impress her? And <laughs> she, she followed you <laughs> across the country? No way. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Was, uh, I just thought I'd have over. to follow up um, on that question, you know? <laughs> no, you know, that one, that one never came back around. Okay. And honestly... I think everything happens for a reason and learn from it. Sure. And that was a great, it was, man, that was one of the most profound learning experiences in my life because it taught me where I needed to show up better. But at the, at the other side, at the other side of it too, is if you're in a place in life where you're not happy with the results that you're getting, oftentimes you have to stop and look around and who you're surrounding yourself with. Mm. And that's, that's first. If you're surrounding yourself with toxic people who are holding you back, you need to cut them loose. And that's what she did. I wasn't toxic, but I was holding her back. Sure. And she made the right move and cutting me loose. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a 100% believer in, you know, my life is a reflection of who I am and who I'm being. So if there's some parts of my life that I don't like, go look in a mirror and ultimately, uh, you know, the buck stops with me or the results Mm -hmm. lie with me because, uh, 
you know, there's the old phrase, no matter where I go, there I am. So, you know, I have to look <laughs> at my life and go, am I happy with my life? Like, is it a cool life? It's got all its challenges, you know, and, but ultimately, if I've got relationships that are, you know, not working for me, or if I'm going down a path that just doesn't light me up, then there's only one person that can be responsible for that. And that's me. That's, that's, I think, I think that's a great way of thinking, but I also see the other side of that, which it can get a little heavy sometimes, uh, you know, in terms of beating myself up in, you know, when it isn't the way I want it to be. But for you, that's, that's, you know, that's just a, a random comment, but go ahead. Well, and, and again, like my mind just keeps going to analogies and sure. the, my, my partner the other day, like we have this bad streak of, of hiring in certain areas where we're like, man, we really suck at this. Um, and we looked at it and he said, well, we are the common denominator. And what's interesting about that is I think it's very human nature to try and focus on changing the numerator, which is everybody else, that number on top of the line. Mm. But if the the number on the bottom of the line is zero, it doesn't matter how big that other <laughs> number is, right? Yeah. So you have to start with yourself and the denominator, make that bigger, it's going to change everything. Mm. You do what you do in business. You've got your focus right now on the real estate side of things. Um, what do you do for yourself in terms of looking after you? You sound like you're still very physical. You're probably still rock climbing because that's what you'll always do as long as you can. Uh, but is there a physical routine? Do you have, do you have a uh, spiritual routine? Are you a meditator? What do you do to look after yourself, you know, in the center to be the center of your universe and be really uh, powerful in the space and the hub that you are? What do you do to look after yourself? So yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the idea that you you can't pour out from an empty cup. And so you have to be filling your cup first and then fill the cups around you with the abundance. Mm -hmm. And so I am very rigid in my self-care routine in terms of every morning from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. You you can't get me mm -hmm. during that period of time because I'm focused on the most important asset in my life, which is me. And that's uh, across the board. I play a lot of tennis. I play a lot of chess. And so those are physical and mental exercises that I do. I lift weights every morning. I go for runs. And so I try to get active every single day to take care of this body. But then I also focus as much on, it's not just your health, your physical health. It's also about your mental health. And if your mind isn't in the right place, if you're not constantly searching to understand yourself better, then you're falling into what was it, Archimedes or Aristotle who said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And mm -hmm. it's true. Like mm -hmm. you have to, you, you, your, your quality of life just goes so much deeper once you start looking internally instead of externally. And so I spend a lot of time meditating every morning and journaling. I think Writing is the most powerful yeah. skill any of us can yeah. acquire. Yeah. It's the it's the ephemeral thought made physical. Mm -hmm. it, it is it, it's unquestionably the most powerful tool that I have for not just understanding myself, but also understanding what I think about the world and and everything around me. And so I spend a lot of time on those activities. And I think for me, it puts me in a place where from there, I can tackle the rest of my day knowing that I've done, I've, I've prioritized myself, the most mm -hmm. important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, usually a five to nine guy, but I'm with you. I own my mornings. I always have as long as, you know, for... 
my mornings, they set the tone for the day and it's very rare that I let them get off track. And I mean, it's not that I never do because they're just things that happen. And, you know, I've got, you know, business associates in Eastern Canada. So I'm on the West coast, Mm -hmm. you know, they're in the other end of town. So the other end of the country. So there's three hour time differences. I usually get voted to be the early guy because I'm up anyways. (laughs) So, uh, and and that's all fine. But, you know, what's interesting is, is that uh, like you, um, you know, I've been very physical for many, many years. Uh, I, I, ha- I am guilty of maybe taking some time off through COVID where I haven't been as uh, consistent with it. And I've been dealing with a couple of injuries the past year, which I'm now through and getting back to being physical again. The point is, is that looking after yourself is so, um, so important. And, you know, part of, you know, the whole podcast is understanding that, you know, seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary is, is really about, you know, discipline and focus and some of the things that you do. And, uh, you know, journaling, it's interesting. I started journaling a, probably a little bit year. I don't know when you started. I started in my very early 30s is the first time I journaled. And it was profound, the impact it had on me when I started journaling and was turned on to it. You know, I'm now 63 years old. I've been journaling for 30 years, basically. And, uh, you know, not every day for you, but I, I can go. I went for years every day. I'll go for months every day and then I'll take maybe some time off. But ultimately, very rare that I don't journal. Um, and as well as meditation, we did, uh, you know, we studied, my wife and I studied uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation, you know, oh gosh, I don't know, 25 years ago. And so we've done some version of meditation for that many years. And so it's always encouraging when you, when I talk to other people that kind of have gone on that path and see the benefits of it, and and how do you express it to others to do that. You know, if you're really struggling, journaling is such a powerful tool. To your journaling, do you use a, a, a certain style or, uh, you know, like some guys like pages, you know, where they're just downloading onto paper? Do you have a, or do you have a more disciplined approach to your journaling? I'm constantly changing yeah. and doing it differently. Sure. Like sometimes, like, uh, I, I don't think that there's one solution that's going to be a one size fits all for everybody and, yep. or even for yourself indefinitely. Yep. Right. And so sometimes I'll do a guided prompt in a journal sure. that says, Hey, think about these things. I'm like, cool. I haven't, I had no reason to think about that. Sometimes it'll be like morning pages where it's just stream of consciousness, yep. three pages, yep. just whatever comes out. And yep. sometimes it's more, sometimes it's bullet points, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And one of the interesting things is I started formally journaling as I think about it now in my 30, in my early thirties as well. But mm-hmm. before that, what I found was as I started journaling, because there was this gap between when I started journaling and when I was writing science fiction and fantasy novels. And what science fiction and fantasy, what I realized was that was really me journaling mm-hmm. through the lens of robots, aliens, and things that go boom. <laughs> but all the characters, awesome. all the things that they were getting into, they were really just a reflection of what I was struggling with in my own life, my own psyche. And so it's like this really interesting realization. Um, many, many years later, I, I didn't realize it as I was doing it, but the act of journaling takes you so much deeper into understanding yourself Mm -hmm. and why you react the way that you do to things because we're so complicated as creatures and it's never the first thing you think it is. It's always like seven layers deeper. And until you can get to the roots of the matter, you can't really understand it or accept it. Like you're constantly confused until you get to that point. And it's not about changing the thing. It's just, it's about understanding enough so that you can accept it as it is and then let it go. 
And I think so many of us, and I still have so much baggage, obviously, but I, it's, as, as you drop one suitcase, you pick up another one. Right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <We> always, <laughs> that's how it goes. But, yeah, you can't make baggage go away. I mean, and, and, it, and, and it, you no. can't make it wrong. I mean, it, it's, we're human beings, right? So, Yeah. And what I would say to people who are listening to this and have maybe tried meditating, it didn't stick, or they tried journaling and like, this was hard, writing sucks, I'm not good at this. Here's the thing. I want you to think about meditating less as this pursuit of peaceful zen yeah. and more like mental weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Recognize that you're going into the octagon of your mind and wrestling with the monkey <laughs> that's already in there. Uh, and it's way bigger than you. Uh, great and metaphor. until you realize that like it's going to suck and that monkey's going to kick your butt because you haven't been in there enough to know how he moves and how strong he is. You haven't built your own muscles. Like nobody goes to the gym. If you if you never lift and you go into the gym, and you try to lift something heavy and you can't do it, you don't go, well, that's stupid. It doesn't work. You just go, I'm not strong enough yet. I'm not good enough yet. And that's what meditating is. Just recognize that there isn't a point where you ever beat the monkey. The monkey just kind of gets bigger. after, Like as you get better, so does it. And mm-hmm. so the line just keeps moving. But the, it's it's the act of moving your own capacity forward. Mm-hmm. That's what really matters. And there comes this moment every now and then, God is so fleeting, but when it does, it feels amazing where you're just like, you do find that Zen, but it's the exception. It's not the rule. And when you get it, you're like, oh, this is beautiful. I don't seek the Zen. I've, I've, I've had those experiences many times over the years, but I, I came to realize a couple of things is that, you know, people get frustrated. They go, I can't quiet my mind. Well, okay, no, you can't. That's exactly, you know, meditation isn't about quieting your mind. It's actually letting the thoughts come and go and not hanging onto a thought and following it down, you know, the rabbit hole that it'll take you, you know, hence that's why many meditations have some form of a mantra or they want you focused on your breathing. And all those things are great, by the way. But one of, uh, I'll share this with you. Um, and it was, uh, Kyle Cease, who's a real cool cat that I follow and uh, have been part of his programs. He talks about meditation in a really interesting way. And it, re- it makes sense if you've ever owned a fish tank, right? Where you got to clean the fish tank. And he uses that as the, as the analogy. And he goes, you know, you fill, you, you know, you take your fish out and then what you do is you fill it with water and you swish it around. The water's really grubby and you throw it out and then you fill it again and you swish it around and the gravel's all moving and and you know the water is not quite as bad and you swish it around you throw it out again and you do that three or four times and the next thing you know the water is starting to get quite clear and then you just leave it and then all of a sudden there's clarity and he says meditation when you look at it that way is really about constantly doing that meditation letting these thoughts go through and letting them go letting them go kind of like the water you know swishing it out and then when you stop and after a while that clarity does emerge when you start stay in the meditation. And I went, yeah, it's actually a pretty accurate way of, of how I now handle my meditation. I don't make any of my thoughts wrong. I don't get frustrated or pissed off. I just let them come and I let them go, you know, back to your mantra, back to your breathing, let them come, let them go. And uh, it's amazing the impact that that can have. I think that's such a cool analogy. Like it's, it's powerful. And what the way that I think about meditating and then writing mm-hmm. and why writing is such a good compliment to meditating is because meditating is about letting that monkey mind just go, just letting it be, just letting it fly. And then writing is taking that monkey mind by the hand and walking it from point A to point Z to find clarity about what you feel on a topic or what Mm -hmm. you think on a topic. And until you take that monkey by the hand, which is the pen and put it to the paper, the monkey mind is just, it's all over the place. And so that's Mm -hmm. where the physical connection of writing helps with the process of thinking. Mm -hmm. 
I'll share this with you and, and I know you'll get it right away. And this was shared with me about the power of journaling and the brain. And there is a certain psychology to understanding about how the brain works. So in other words, you know, that monkey brain that you've got going on firing, you're actually generally having the same conversation with yourself over and over and over again. <laughs> We've all experienced that. The interesting part about the brain and writing is that once you write something down, when you get into journaling and you start downloading your journaling, especially when you're early on in journaling or if you're dealing with some trauma in your life or some event that is, I mean, trauma as in, it could be a divorce, it could be a fight with a, a partner, whatever that might be. But the point is this, is that your brain is really interesting. Unlike your, uh, not unlike a hard drive, right? It gets full of shit, you know? And you remember back in the old days, you used to have to defrag a hard drive. Well, journaling is a way of defragging your brain because as, as advanced as it is, but here's the thing about the brain. When you write it down, it has no reason to hang on to it. So mm -hmm. often what journaling is, is clearing the space. And when you write things down, it clears space because your brain goes, oh, that's gone. That's done. That's done. I don't need to remember that. I don't need to remember that. And every time you write something down and your brain doesn't have to remember it, it moves on to something else because you've just given it some capacity. And it's an interesting way of understanding journaling. And I was shared with me many years ago. And I really, for me, it really does. I get it. I get it 100%. And uh, when I have a really cluttered brain, lots of stress going on or lots of stuff going on, I journal it. I'll never go back and read the journal, but all of a sudden, none of those mm -hmm. thoughts matter anymore. It's not like I have to go back it's and gone. remember. It's like they're gone and I'm on to what I need to be on to because my mind is cleared up. And that's really, for me, the power of journaling. I, I resonate with that a thousand percent on my, I have, a, I use a bunch of just digital tools to help me with, you know, to do's and journaling and whatnot. And one of them, is, I, it's labeled, it's called second brain mm. literally it's called second brain where i go and i dump everything that's currently in my brain that i don't want to hold anymore so i can close those cognitive loops because mm. otherwise they just go indefinitely yeah and as soon as it's there <laughs> and this is how i delegate too and i tell my employees where i'm like if i delegate something to you you're my second brain you're my third brain yeah. it's gone i'm not yeah. thinking about it anymore yeah. so i need to trust that you're going to run with it mm -hmm. and take care of this thing because it's it's not in my brain anymore it's interesting. I, I joked to my wife, Stephanie, whose whose memory is off the charts. And uh, my mine is uh, just the opposite of that. So she's like, I always <laughs> joke that she's my, you know, she's like my second hard drive. And uh, she's got this uh, amazing <laughs> gift uh, around names. She does not forget a name like ever. And, uh, you know, she'll have a conversation to the point where she has to pretend that she forgot somebody's name. Uh, so she'll have a conversation. it's weird. Well, it's weird, right? Because she'll have a conversation with you and she'll meet Anthony and, you know, she'll have a conversation. And the next thing you know, oh, yeah, and my wife, Mary, and my kids, you know, you know, John and, and you know, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, and she retains it a hundred percent. So you'll say, yeah, so we had a birthday present. He was seven and John was really cool. And the other kids were jealous. Okay. Well, five years later, she'll walk up to you. She'll go, Hey, Anthony, how's John and your other kid? And how was that birthday party? And you're looking at her going, who are you? lady? <laughs> you are strange. And, uh, but I, and I've, and I've witnessed this happen many times because nobody has that kind of memory. And it's one of her gifts. And we laugh about it often where, uh, she'll, uh, you know, she'll reintroduce her herself or pretend that she doesn't know anything about you when she actually knows a lot. <laughs> so funny. And I'm just pathetic. I, I, awesome. I mean, I'll, after we 
log out here, somebody will say, oh, who's your podcast today? And I go, ah, let me look. I think it was, I don't, know, I don't remember his name. No, and I joke. We talked about monkeys. I don't know. <laughs> we talked about monkeys. And it's, got, <laughs> and it's not that I didn't absolutely love this conversation. So, uh, and speaking yeah. of which, we've been, uh, you've been very generous with your time. And as we wind this podcast down, I like to do a couple of what we would call to rapid fire questions, which aren't necessarily always that rapid fire, but we'll go through them anyways. <laughs> so, Anthony. You ready for some rapid fire questions? Hit me with them. Okay, these are but easy. only if you talk in like super speed. You gotta like hit <laughs> no, fast. Uh, this is but this is all I got. So, uh, <laughs> favorite book or one of the most impactful books that you've read that's impacted you, or that one that you would gift a lot because you think it's so awesome. The and this is easy. Uh, the book that I have gifted the most is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's oh, I love short. Marcus Aurelius. So I did the whole program. Yes, I studied so Marcus Aurelius. Yes. Man, he's fascinating. And to, to again, like the point of journaling, mm-hmm. this book is really this man's journal to himself. So he was mm-hmm. wise emperor of Rome. He wasn't writing this book to influence anybody else. He was wrestling with things. And the things that he was wrestling with as the emperor of the known world at that point are the same things I'm wrestling with thousands of years later. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so profoundly simple where humans... All, you know, everything around us keeps changing, but the problems we're trying to solve, problems of meaning and connection and fulfillment and like, what's the point of being here? They're universal. They never go away. There is no answer. And so it's in the striving. And so Mm -hmm. that book for me is is just amazing. Well, if you want to take it to the next level, and I say this in all seriousness, because I did this, that's you take uh, Marcus Aurelius, those meditations, Uh, Mark Mm -hmm. Manson and his partner took it to the next level where they actually, you journal every day on one of those meditations. So in other words, you read the meditation for that day, you journal on it. And then when you get home at the end of the day, you go, how did it apply to me in my life? Mm -hmm. It's a 365 day program. I did that a couple of years ago, profound effect and was really, really impactful. And uh, Cheryl Maycock is uh, my VP of uh, operations, uh, turned me on to that. uh, And it was so good. She did the program. She still does it. So uh, it's really, really cool. So I recommend it. So great. Uh, awesome. Do you have a favorite tune, favorite band, something that I, shows up? I don't really listen to music, mm. honestly. Um, so when I work, I have to work with white noise uh, playing in my headphones because yeah. I get yeah. distracted really easily. Now, do you, so can you, can you do white noise? ADHD. Is it white noise or can you do, let's say, uh, like some kind of classical music? No, piano, something no like that. I can't have anything with a melody. Okay, um, I can do like rain. I can do white noise. Mm. Um, but, you know, for me, it's about environment design sure. and, and minimizing the amount of distractions that can prop up. And so I don't really listen to too much music anymore when I was mm. younger. Yeah. Um, I listened to a lot of John Butler Trio. Um, I like I like acoustic guitar and I like people that use the acoustic guitar in new, novel, interesting ways. And mm-hmm. so that's fingerstyle. That's like some interesting tapping. And so yeah. but I, I don't really listen. I was I was actually thinking about this in the shower today. I was like, I don't even know when I would listen to some music uh, right now. Like, yeah, I, I don't know the last time I listened to it in the car. But um, I will say this is when I do listen to music, it's usually some kind of emotionally charged music. Mm. I want to feel something. And typically it's because I'm, I would say stoic. Some people would say I'm emotionally dead inside. Um, I like to listen to music that makes me feel sad Mm. because sad is not an emotion that I feel very frequently in my Mm. day to day life, but music 
does make me connect with that emotion. So mm, interesting. I'm not a big music guy either. Uh, what I love to study to is uh, Baroque, and uh, that is really, mm. really powerful for study and for journaling. For me, that works really great. So, uh, oh. and I and I, it's not that I don't listen to music, but I'll give you an example. Like I have friends. I'll be in the middle of a conversation with them, and they'll go. And they'll name the tune in the background. I didn't even hear the tune in the background and they're naming it. So it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a total disconnect when it comes to music. How about movie? You got a favorite, favorite movie? Oh, uh, that, that's a good question. I have, so Lion King. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that's no joke. Like seriously, the, the moment when Mufasa dies and Simba's like, dad, get up, let's go home. Like I have daddy issues, obviously, right? Like, like that movie hit me that's hard. Hilarious. Yeah. The, the Matrix was also really impactful for yeah. me. And like, you know, I was a science fiction writer and that was at a time in my life where I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Really expanded my horizons. So, well, I can tell you right um, now. The Lion King is probably number one. <laughs> no guest on the show has ever brought up Lion King as their favorite, but I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> Matrix, yes. Shawshank Redemption, all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? So it's, uh, you know, top, back to the top gun, the top gun, you know, all of those ones that we love. So when you were, um, tell me something, you know, have you given up writing totally? Do you still go back to uh, having to write some uh you know, some fiction? I don't write fiction anymore, but mm. I do write every single day. Yeah. I just actually published, it's just so happens I got the bad boy. What so is I started it? writing. What did you just show? What did you just things. show me? Hold it up again. Oh, what is it? This is a book. So this came out last, uh, last month, Passive Investing Made Simple. Wow. It's all about nice. passive investing. Yeah. Good for you. So, so what was interesting is that what happened when I was writing science fiction and fantasy, this overlapped with when this girl, my fiance who left me was this feeling like I'm not, really contributing something meaningful to the world. I'm contributing mm. stories, which are important, and uh, escapism and entertainment. These are important things. But I felt like I had more to contribute and more to share from inside mm. that I thought I could do it through the veneer of science fiction and things going boom. Mm. What I realized was I can be more impactful if I don't let those the window dressings get in the way and I just share more directly from me and saying, this is my experience and what I what I've struggled with. And so I write a lot more now around mindset and investing mm -hmm. and entrepreneurship because those topics I feel like the long-term effects of somebody consuming that information, they can transform their life. And if you want to change the world, you got to start with yourself. And yeah. so that for me, when I'm writing those things with whether it's a blog or a book like this, I'm like, this has so much meaning and purpose behind it that mm -hmm. it, it it feels better to me. It's interesting, you know, you'd bring up mindset. And so my wife, Stephanie, has been to a couple of different Olympics and works with she's she's actually a mental performance coach with uh, professional and Olympic class athletes. And, and the reality of it is, is that she's not a technical coach. She's not going to go out and tell somebody how to do their sport better. But ultimately, she knows when they get when they get themselves handled, which is more of that internal kind of work, um, they perform better. You know, times get better. Performances get better. Uh, they win more. And it's not about more technical, more how-to. No, it's not about strategies and tactics. It's really about... It becomes easier too, yeah, right? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I wish more business people or, you know, real estate investors could get that, you know, because we're in the space that we're in. Everybody's like, tell me how, give me another tactic, give me another strategy. I go, that's the least of your worries right now, right? You know, get into that mindset conversation. So it's interesting. Uh, favorite swear word? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, if I go with the one that just came to mind, it's the F word. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so somebody the other day said douche canoe, and I thought that was really, <laughs> really was fucking funny. <laughs> 
You're a douche canoe. I'm like, what? Okay. Well, I've not heard that. Uh, you know, it's interesting is because I'm an F-bomber. I'll, you know, I'll fuck this and fuck that when I'm mm-hmm. mad. And, I, you know, it's all of those things. But every so often I get a guest and, and it really always throws me off. And, and uh, I've got so many, I've had so many great guests, but they'll go, nah, I don't swear. I go, what the hell? Uh, like, who what? can do that? Nah, who can do that? Yeah, they don't say, they, nah, nah, I don't. I don't have You're to. a better man than I. That's what you are. If you, you can have do a that. far greater command of the English language than I do, because, yeah. uh, you know, on the other hand, room, your desk, or your car, ADHD guy, What's what that? do you clean first? Your room, your car, or your desk? My desk. Your desk. 100%. If you look at my, if you look at my room, it's a hot mess. If you look at my car, I couldn't care less. Yeah. My desk is all important because that is my battle station. And again, mm-hmm. environment design is everything. What is on the desk around me has to be very particular in its place. And if it's not, mm. then again, my open cognitive loop is running and I'm like, I'm pontificating and, and perseverating on it not being where it needs to be. And yeah. But everything else in my life, I could care less where it's at. Mm, interesting. Now you say your car is a mess. Are you a car guy at all? No, I drive a Toyota Prius yeah. uh, C, which is the <laughs> tiny little Prius, not not known it's for not like even being the big, badass, yeah. which is funny. My okay. partner, my partner Dan, he drives like a really nice Mercedes. Like yeah, we're yeah. just completely different people in that way. I'm like, I don't care. Like it's car it gets me from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I have a buddy, you know, my one my chief growth officer, Jean Guy, uh, JG Franco. You, you know, he, he drives a Porsche, and then he's got a Porsche SUV, but he's got his Boxster, uh, and. Uh, but it's like they're construction vehicles, you know, and at any given time, he's like, he calls drywall around in them. It's, you know, they're a mess. He's hilarious, but he loves to go fast. And he loves Porsche, you know, so it's, it's very, very interesting. So um, when you get to the gates, if heaven exists, what do you want to hear him say? So there's this, this story of this guy who was a kid, he was fascinated with the military and war. And he was always studying like the great generals of the past, like Tilla and Alexander the Great and Napoleon. And he was like fascinated, he grew up and he was in high school and just like obsessed with it. And this was the time of the great war. And when he was 18, he had this opportunity to, to go and join up, but he didn't because he was afraid. And so he went a different way in life. He never lost his fascination with war and, and generalship and like what could be. And he spent the rest of his life fascinated and obsessed with this thing, but ultimately not pursuing it. And when he died and he went to the pearly gates and he asked them, so who was it? Who was the best general of all time? And whoever's sitting at the pearly gates said, it would have been you. Mm. And for me, I hear a story like that, and it resonates a lot where I want to get to the end of whatever this journey is and be able to look back and say, I did everything I could to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of chasing your competence or pursuing your greatness, and I'll never catch it. I'll never catch my perfect self, but I want to get as close to it as possible. Mm. A worthy goal iPhone or, or or Android? Android. Oh, really? I was an All Android Apple guy. users, yeah. Yeah, I know. You know something? I was surrounded by guys who just drink the Apple Kool-Aid. I was PC I and Android guy. You know something? And now I have both. And and uh, I'm mostly on my, my iPhone. But I'm going, you guys, like, 
I've, I can compare. I had years of Android. Now I've had, you know, a full year of iPhone. And, and these guys that are drinking this Apple Kool-Aid, I think it's just got to stop. I think it's crazy. It's not that at, great. At the end of the day, they're, they're both great. My yeah. problem is the fan boyship and fangirlship of like people consuming and being in the Apple ecosystem, yeah. but not realizing yeah. how enslaved they are to that system. Totally. Where if that system goes down, yeah. if Apple goes away right now, yeah. you are in a lot of trouble, which yeah. isn't going to happen, but you it might. You know. I know. I, uh, anyways, we could go down the, <laughs> we could go down the, bash on Apple. the Apple, but bash Apple users. <laughs> anyways, and Please don't send me any Apple hate people. <laughs> I love Steve Jobs. Great guy. And Tim uh, Cook, also good. <laughs> exactly. So Anthony, uh, what are you grateful for today? I am grateful for this conversation, for this opportunity to share my story for, we spend so much time like reading and hearing in the news about like all the bad things that are happening in life. And that's only because like the amount of good that's happening on a day-to-day basis is just so overwhelmingly positive by comparison to how few things are actually going badly Mm -hmm. that it's not newsworthy to report all the good things. And like this conversation and the opportunity to share my story, like, it just it reminds it reminds me of that, like the opportunity to talk to a guy who's in Canada right now and like and talk to all these people. Like, it's just so cool to be able to be living life right now. So that's what I'm grateful for. Yeah. Awesome. I am always grateful to have the opportunity to uh, speak with one of my guests and you today. Uh, grateful to have, uh, have met you and got to know you and listen to your story today has been terrific. So I want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you some more in the future. Likewise. Thank you, Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.